then we'll wrap it up next week. If you're just joining us, I'm not even quite sure what else to tell you about the book of Ecclesiastes, other than that it's a brutally honest take on life that tries to help us come to grips with the harshest realities of mortal life so that we'll really learn how to live. Uh, along the way through the book of Ecclesiastes, the teacher or the preacher of the book has begun to shift his tone just a bit in the last couple of chapters from simply making observations about the world to now actually giving us some advice on how to live. And in this section, he's got some advice, particularly for young people, though to be fair, young is kind of a relative thing, isn't it? You know, you heard Larry last week start to bemoan the aches and pains of being 65. But if there's anybody here, you know, who's pushing 80, I've heard 80-year-olds say, oh, 65, <laughs> I was so young, you know, so this passage has something to say to all of us. But what I think this passage is especially trying to protect us from, and particularly if you are young, is from two kinds of regrets. One would be like a, an over-anxious paralysis or an over-pious passivity about life. The other kind would be a foolish, self-indulgent kind of life that just forgets about God. Neither is living well. So the preacher says, if you want to live well, then three things. One, rejoice in your youth. Two, remember your creator. And three, get ready for the end. So rejoice in your youth, remember your creator, and get ready for the end. First, rejoice. Uh, back to verse nine. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. And let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. For youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Youth and the dawn of life. When the sun is first rising, he says, on life, these days are fleeting. They go by so quickly. And this is a reality recognized by the aged more so than the young. When you're young, you look ahead and you feel as if you have so much time ahead of you. And as they say, youth is wasted on the young, right? You don't realize how precious your youthfulness is. Strong bodies that heal up like wolverines, you know? Agile minds, boundless energy, new ideas, eagerness to explore and learn and create. Ecclesiastes says you won't always have these things at your disposal. So the teacher's advice is that you should rejoice in that. And you should walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes to remove vexation or anxiety from your heart and put away pain or evil from your body. Now, there's a lot that could be said about his advice, but let me just say two things about it. The first is that, one, God wants you to rejoice in life. And secondly, only God knows how to rejoice in life. So first, God wants you to rejoice. Don't rush past the obvious thing here in the passage, young person especially. God likes joy, and he wants you to share in it. Did you know this about God, that he's like into joy? He's into that. He's into happiness. And this isn't just limited to the teaching of Ecclesiastes. Read the Psalms. Read Philippians chapter 4. Read John chapter 15. Look at the life of Jesus, and you'll see that God, he's a God of joy. He wants you to share in it. God's not a miser 
or a curmudgeon. He's the Lord of joy. And as we've said at other times in the book, this doesn't mean that there's not times for intense sorrow or grief and sadness in this life. Ecclesiastes said there's a time for that in chapter 3. Joy was not Jesus' only emotion. He was also the man of sorrows. But there is a myth that holy people cannot be happy people. And that's a myth that needs busting, I think. You know, that to be good is to be boring or to be stiff, you know, uppity. The version of this that I experienced, you know, like when I went to college, is that if you really want to have fun, you should join a fraternity and party and hook up with people. And if you don't do that, you must not like fun. You must be a boring person. Now, thankfully, in college, I had a friend who I think was a really good role model for me. He went to a different college. He went to UGA, where Ashley actually went. So when I would go visit her, I would stay with him, with with this friend. And I don't think I've had a friend, I don't think I've known a person who enjoyed their college experience more than this guy. He was one of the guys who would paint his chest for the UGA football games and wear the crazy wigs and be on the front row of the student section, always featured on ESPN every Saturday. But he also really loved Jesus. He led a morally upright life. He was super involved in his college ministry. Uh, he taught an apologetics class about like why consider Christianity for college students. And he also knew when and how to have fun. Uh, I remember one weekend I went to visit Ash and I stayed with him. And at this time, disc golf was just kind of becoming more popular on college campuses everywhere now. But at the time, it was just kind of starting to get a little more popular. So uh, one Friday night, we had the crazy idea to go out because there was no like disc golf courses on campus yet to just make our own disc golf course. So we went out at midnight with some friends and we threw discs everywhere on UGA's campus. And I don't think we caused too much damage to the campus. But, you know, we just would make our own, our own nets, that sign or this tree or that person. Just kidding. We did not throw at people. <laughs> um, but, man, I think we had as much or more fun than any person in the town of Athens that Friday night. And zero regrets the next morning. Now, that's not to say that your life or your route as a Christian in this world might not be lonely at times might not require self-sacrifice, but there is a myth that needs busting that Christians just aren't fun. So to all my youth friends, you know, I get that there's a lot of angst in being a young person, especially being a young person these days, maybe especially in being a young Christian person these days. You know, you're trying to make good decisions. You're trying to find your way in life. You're trying to figure yourself out, what you're good at. You're trying to make friends. You're trying to navigate the whole girl-guy thing. You're trying to keep up your grades. You're trying to make your parents happy. Maybe you're even dealing with a broken family. There's a lot. And so there's a temptation to think that if you can just get out of this season in life, if you can just get out of your parents' house, if you can just get out of school, you'll be happy. You'll get the guy or girl that you want. You'll get in the college that you like. You'll get the job. You'll move to the city. Maybe you'll have a family one day. Maybe you'll get a boat. Who knows? Once you get there, though, the problem is, <laughs> guess what? You're still there. You're still not where you want to be, and you're still not happy. You're still waiting for the next season of life, and you just end up waiting your whole life. The teacher would tell you, no, the clock is ticking. Don't be so worried about tomorrow 
that you can't find some joy in today. If there are dreams you have, things you want to explore, go for it, he says. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes, he says. Or as St. Augustine said it, love God and then do as you please. If you'll keep the love of God, the central thing of your life, then you can go on to enjoy other things in your life for what they are because you're not trying to worship them for what only God can be. So young person, with God at the center, you are free to live and to enjoy the life you have. Go for it, he says. Don't sit around twiddling your thumbs waiting for things to get better. Live the life that you have. But there's an important caveat or clarification. On the flip side, the teacher also tells you that only God knows how you should rejoice. So like verse 9, again, let's look again. Rejoice, young man, in your youth. Let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. So when he says, walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, he doesn't mean, hey, break as many rules as you want. No one cares, not even God. You know, he, he, knows, he knows how teenagers think, I guess. Uh, Mom and dad, didn't you hear? The sermon slash the Bible told me to have fun with my life. So from now on, I'm not going to listen to you. I'm going to do whatever I want. Thank you very much. Not so fast, he says. Know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. In other words, don't let your full-hearted living turn into foolhardy living, selfish, sinful living. Now, this isn't meant to be like a buzzkill on your happiness in life. It's actually meant to protect your joy, to keep you from looking for joy in ways or places that would ultimately only lead to your harm and sorrow. All God's commands and the idea of the accountability of judgment is for your good, not to curb your joy. C.S. Lewis, I think, had one of the best illustrations of this. He put it in a letter to a friend uh, who was actually struggling with what to do as a Christian with his experience of same-sex attraction. And uh, he and C.S. Lewis wrote letters back and forth. And Lewis said, okay, so think about it like this. If you take your dog on a walk with a leash and you come up to a post or a tree or fire hydrant, inevitably, apart from the usual ceremonies that happen at these places with dogs, your dog at some point is going to want to go to the wrong side of the post and get looped around it. So you pull back on the leash to try to get him to come unwrapped. You pull back because you want him to go forward. I'll quote Lewis now because it's hard to beat his wordsmithing, and he imagines talking to a dog as only a British scholar would. So he says, my dear dog. <laughs> and it's really complex thought. I'm shocked the dog can follow it. He said, if by your will, what you mean is what you really want to do to get forward along the road, I not only understand this desire, but share it. Ford is exactly where I want you to go. If by your will, on the other hand, you mean your will to pull against the collar and try to force yourself forward in a direction which is no use, I cannot possibly share it. In fact, the more I sympathize with your real wish, that is, the wish to get on, the less I can sympathize with your resistance to the collar, for I can see that this is actually rendering the attainment of your real wish impossible. All right. What's his point? He makes it. In his letter, he says, God not only understands, but shares the desire which follow him carefully is at the root of all my evil. 
the desire for complete and ecstatic happiness. He made me for no other purpose than to enjoy it. But He knows, and I do not, how it can be really and permanently attained. But the thirst will never be quenched as I tried to quench it. If I refrain, if I submit to the collar, if I follow God's commandments and come round to the right side of the lampposts, God will quickly be guiding me as He can to where I shall get what I really wanted all the time. We all want to be happy, Lewis says. And God's down with that. But only He knows the real route there. So what feels like Him pulling on us by His commands and giving us constraints is actually His way of trying to get us, getting us unwrapped from the post and moving forward. Knowing that He will judge your life in the end and has given you commandments for your good, this is the way forward to joy. As Derek Kidner put it, joy was never meant to dance alone. It dances with goodness. Joy and goodness dance together. Jesus sums it up perfectly, of course, when he says, John 15, when you obey my commandments, you remain in my love just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I've told you these things about, you know, obeying my commandments so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. So if you want to live well, young-ish person, Piece of advice number one, rejoice in the life that you have ahead of you. Piece of advice number two, which interplays with this, is to remember, to remember your creator. So rejoice and then remember. Uh, chapter 12, turn the chapter to verse one. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. So not only should you rejoice while you're young, you should make a point to remember your Creator, especially when you're young. Now, what does this mean? First, to, to remember your Creator is not just like, oh, oh yeah, God, I remember Him. Didn't forget about you, God. Wrote your name on my hand today so I would not forget about you. Now, this kind of remembering is a way of saying in the Bible, putting something front and center before your mind and before your life. It's to put God at the center, to make him the center of, the world, of your world instead of you. To remember your creator, it says. So like think about when the Texian armies cried, remember the Alamo. If you remember that from history. So see, that was a different kind of remember that I just said, if you remember it from history. They didn't mean, hey, guys, do you remember what happened at the Alamo? When they yelled it, they meant it as a way of invigorating each other to dig down deep into the things that meant the most to them to fight like lions because of what happened to their fallen comrades at the Alamo, right? It's that kind of remembering. So remember God, he says, passionately. Put him first. Live for him, especially while you're young, the teacher says. Now, his advice is a little counterintuitive for us culturally, I think. I can't tell you, like as a youth pastor and just former teacher, how many people, young and perhaps middle-aged too, I've heard say something like this. I know faith is important and all, but I don't want to get too serious about it when I'm young. I think maybe when I'm older, you know, then I'll really get into God and stuff. But I would suggest that's not a good way to think. If that's you, that's not a great way to think for two reasons. One, isn't that pretty much just using God instead of loving him? You know, this is your line of thinking. Then are you really all that interested in God at the end of the day or even at the end of your life? 
Or are you just interested in the insurance policy? If you're honest, what you're saying is, I'll get serious about God later because, you know, I might need him then. I just don't think God is really interested in being used like that. But then secondly, I think you could probably ask any person who comes to trust Jesus at an older age, and they would tell you something like this. What I wish I could have done differently at a younger age if I had followed Jesus then. The teacher is trying to save you from regret later, from looking back at your life and wishing you had remembered your creator while you had energy, while you had dreams, before you had so many regrets, as the teacher says, before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Uh, James Miller, a Presbyterian pastor, he wrote so wisely. He said, we are each in all our earlier years building the house in which we shall have to live when we grow old. And we may make it a prison or a palace. Sin may seem pleasant to us now, but we must not forget how it will appear when we get past it and turn to look back on it, especially must we keep in mind how it will seem from a dying pillow. Nothing brings such pure peace and quiet joy at the close as a well-lived past. We are every day laying up the food on which we must feed in the closing years. We are hanging up pictures about the walls of our hearts that we shall have to look at when we sit in the shadows. How important that we live pure and holy lives. So remember your Creator while you're young especially. If you're here today and you're not all that young, I think the teacher would say it's never too late to start remodeling the house that you're building. This passage is not saying that you can't be saved in your old age, that you can't serve God in your old age, but it is encouraging us to live for God with all we have right now before the better portion of our life has been spent. Now, just as one practical point here, I should say I am really thankful for the many North Wake students we have who are doing just this. They are putting God first early on in their lives. And it seems like God uh, lately has been working in a particularly intense way in the lives of many of our students, uh, starting at student life camp a couple weeks ago and continuing now. Several students there made personal, lifelong commitments to Christ. Many others decided that it was time to make some serious changes in their life. So, to celebrate that and to pray about it more and for the church to hear what's just going on in our student ministry next Sunday evening, uh, we're going to call a special prayer meeting together. So 6 o'clock right here next Sunday night, just for about 30 minutes or so. We're going to hear special testimonies from some of those students that went to camp, and we're going to pray together before we send them off to their small groups. And uh, man, I can't think of a more encouraging half hour than that. So if you can make time to be here next Sunday night, 6 o'clock, we're going to hear from our students. So first, rejoice in your youth. Second, remember your creator. But lastly, get ready for the end. Uh, 12 verse 1 again, and then we'll go a little farther. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. And then he's going to go on to give this poem about the, what seems to be like the aging process. It's, it's interesting, if you remember, Ecclesiastes began with a poem about the endless cycle of, of nature. 
Like on and on, the earth, you know, the water comes from the clouds to the sea and then back again. But now the teacher is going to conclude his remarks with another poem about the end of a person's life. And while not all commentators agree on the details of the poem, most agree that it seems to reflect a person's body as it begins to break down. So look at verse 2. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain, like where your vision becomes dim and cloudy, even on a clear day. Verse 3, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble, perhaps these are the hands as they begin to shake with weakness. And the strong men are bent. Perhaps these are the hands, the fingers as they begin to curl up. Perhaps it's the back or the legs as they lose their strength and the person begins to stoop. And the grinders cease because they are few. Perhaps referring to teeth. Can't chew as well, don't have as many. Think about ancient dental care. Not the best 3,000 years ago. And the doors on the street are shut when the sound of grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. It's commenting, I think, on the terrible irony of old age. You can't hear anything, but you wake up at the slightest noise. They're also afraid of what is high and terrors are in the way. Your balance isn't what it was. You get nervous about ladders and steps because I mean, a fall could be fatal. Almond tree blossoms. Almond trees have white blossoms, like white hair. The grasshopper drags itself along. So what was once light and agile now begins to slowly creep along. And desire fails. So our natural appetites of all kinds just don't work like they used to. I don't know. It sounds to me like the teacher is writing from experience here. (laughs) Sounds like he knows what he's talking about. He's really thought about this. And... You might say as you read this, well, that is just a really negative and depressing view on aging. Good grief, you know. I don't know. Show me somebody who really loves the physical side effects of aging. I remember seeing a book sitting on my grandmother's coffee table. It's by Billy Graham called Nearing Home, which is a book about uh, getting older. I remember it was just sitting there and I opened it up and I read the intro to the book out of curiosity And I remember Billy Graham saying something like this, I've always been taught how I'm supposed to die as a Christian, but no one taught me how to handle getting old. And I wish they had, because getting old is not for sissies. Get any group of old people together, and I can guarantee what they'll talk about. (laughs) Their latest aches and pains, yeah. Aging is a strange thing. In some ways, as you hear from his poem, It unmakes a person. You could almost title the teacher's poem, The Unmaking of a Person. The teacher is reflecting on what it's like to begin to lose your five senses. The way in which you perceive and interact and navigate with this world as your senses all slowly withdraw on you and sever your connection with your native habitat. You start feeling as if you don't even totally belong in your own world. If you're not familiar with the book, uh, Every Moment Holy, there's a wonderful prayer in there called A Liturgy for Feeling Infirmities, which would be a good prayer to use for those of us who are aging or ill or to pray for those we love who are aging. Let me read a portion of it to you. It says, We were not made for mortality, 
but for immortality. Our souls are ever in their prime, and so the faltering of our physical bodies repeatedly takes us by surprise. The aches, the frailties, the injuries, the impositions of vexing disease and worsening condition are unwelcome evidences of our long exile from the garden. Give us humility, therefore, in our infirmities, to ask and to receive day by day your mercies as our needs require. Where our dependence on others increases, let us receive their service as a grace rather than a shame. Let us trace in the hands of our caregivers the greater movement of your own hands, for you ever meet us and uphold us in our weakness. And in those moments when our bodies betray our trust, work in us by our own hard experience a more active and Christ-like compassion for the sufferings of others. Give us also a sense of humor to wink at our weaknesses now, knowing that they are but evidences of a perishable body that will at your beckoning rise again imperishable, and that the greater joke is the one played upon death. So may the decline of our bodies incline our hearts and souls ever more vigorously toward your coming kingdom, O God, ever more vigorously. Amen. The last years are hard years for which we need God's help and grace. So pray for the elderly. Visit them. He goes on, verse 6. Remember your Creator before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. And so ends the words of the preacher of Ecclesiastes. After all his searching, questioning, philosophizing, and experiencing life, he is still left banging his head against not so much a brick wall, but perhaps against a granite tombstone. He says human life is so beautiful, but it's so fragile. It's this masterpiece, craftsman, golden bowl, work of art, once hanging from a silver chain, yet in the end, broken and then dropped, cracked like a clay pitcher or a wooden wheel. And at the end of it all, the grave still leaves the preacher shouting, hevel of hevel, all is hevel. Life is fleeting, gone like that. It's frustrating, can't figure it out, and it seems so futile. He says we have an irreparable dust problem. To dust we will return, and our breath will return to the God who gave it. And you're like, huh, that's his conclusion. We look down at our Bibles carefully to check and see if there's any more left in the book. And oh, thank goodness, there is a little bit more, but that's not till next week. Uh, as another voice will come in and conclude the book of Ecclesiastes. But for now, we're left with these, what seem to be the preacher's final words. What do we do with them? Because they're not particularly pleasant. And at one level, they're not supposed to be. Uh, the next section, looking back at the words of the teacher, will describe these words as goads. G-O-A-D-S, goads, which were like sharp, pointy, ouchy sticks that shepherds would use to prod their sheep and cattle. 
listening to the preacher of Ecclesiastes is kind of like going to spiritual boot camp. Larry has called him Grandpa Q for the Hebrew term Kohelet, but I think you could also call him Sergeant Q. And I have it on good word from some people that this is the whole point of boot camp. To build a soldier, first you've got to break down the man or woman. And Sergeant Q has been trying to break you down in order to rebuild you. To bring you to a point where you're so distraught and distressed about nature and the final outcome of life that you're ready to cry uncle. And you'll listen to whatever it takes in order to find some hope and the right way to live. He's trying to throw your own dust in your face. Now, many of you, I think, were left a little stunned the other week when the band played the song Dust in the Wind by Kansas. And we just kind of let it sit. We didn't really explain like why we played it or give any more hope around it. We just kind of played the song. You know this one, you know, Dust in the Wind. All we are is dust in the wind. The last verse would fit well with this passage. Don't hang on. Nothing lasts forever but the earth and sky. It slips away and all your money won't another minute buy. Dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. So is that it to Ecclesiastes? Is that it to life? Is there an encore? Is there another song that the band will come out and play on the stage? Maybe a happier song? Something that you may not know, and to be fair, neither did I. One of my more mature brothers in the faith uh, helped me out with this of pop culture from the late 70s and earlier 80s. Is that the guy who wrote Dust in the Wind, Cary Livgren, he wrote it while he was on his own spiritual quest. He was not a Christian when he wrote this song, but he later became one. And you can read about his story online. He explored several different religions. He was actually in the process of trying to convert one of his uh, fellow musicians to this like fringe religion he was a part of when that friend ended up leading Carrie to Christ. Carrie later said about his song, Dust in the Wind, he said, Dust in the Wind was certainly the most well-known song and the message was out of Ecclesiastes. The message is true and we have to deal with it. Plus, the melody is memorable and very powerful. He's proud of his song, I guess. Um, He said, it disturbs me that there's only part of the Christian story told in that song. It's about someone yearning for some solution. But if you look at the entire body of my work, there is a solution to the dilemma. You know, that's true of the Bible, too. If you look at the entirety of its work, the entire body of its work, There is a solution to the dust problem. 1 Corinthians 15. The first man, Adam, was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man, Christ, is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And this is the famous section about death, where is your sting? Death, where is your victory? Verse 57 says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are dust. This is true. But the God who breathed life into the dust of the ground, who breathed life into the body of the crucified Christ, 
will also breathe eternal life into the lungs of all who call on him in simple trust and who now belong to the man of heaven. So though death rattle its chains at us, it only serves to rouse us to really live this life while it lasts rather than cower in fear because we fear the end. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. So, Father, we do thank you for this book. It is a sharp stick that, that prods us to consider how brief our life here is and to take stock of what we're really living for. So many of the things that we put so much effort into will not last. Some beautiful, some worthwhile, some not so much. So use this book to wake us up to one, the reality of what matters most and also for the hope that you truly offer us in the man from heaven, Jesus Christ who came to live among us as a human being, to be crucified in our place, to die, to die for us, and to be raised so that we might have new life, to know that there is more than dust. So we pray that we would hear these things, that we would hear the message of this book, and that we would live and live differently because of it. Help us, we pray in Christ. Amen.